Debbie was a Wonder Woman. Living in a man's world, she stepped out of obscurity to win the admiration and respect of a nation during a time of real crisis when strong and capable leadership was desperately needed. Due to their own poor choices, Debbie's small country had been under the cruel oppression of a foreign power for 20 years and were crying out for help. Heeding their call, Debbie revitalized her people, restored a sense of patriotism, and simply took charge. Her fame spread far and wide immediately, and she became the go-to person for wise counsel and direction. Debbie responded by taking charge of both her faulty government and their disorganized army. She actually ordered one of the general officers to take command of 10,000 men and attack enemy forces, assuring him of victory. The opposition was well-trained, formidable, and quite imposing, so the general to whom Debbie gave the order had his reservations. In fact, he went so far as to say that he wouldn't do it unless she went with him. Debbie said, no problem, let's go, and she did. As things turned out, it was actually Debbie who led the army with the general's assistance, even giving the signal to attack. The result was a decisive victory, just as Debbie predicted. She became a national hero that day and is remembered as the mother of her country. And what country might that be? It was Israel some 3,400 years ago. By the way, her given name was Deborah, but who knows, maybe Debbie was her nickname? Among all the judges of Israel, between the 14th and 10th centuries BC, only one was a woman, and she was an amazing leader. The known world in those days, and much of the known world today, is patriarchal, with women subordinate to men. Therefore, isn't it strange that Deborah appears as the only female judge in the Bible? Not only that, but two chapters are devoted to her leadership and legacy, which is way more than most of her male counterparts got. Was that a fluke? Or is God showing us something about a woman's place, both in the church and in the world? Let's take a look even further back by considering the genealogy of Jesus presented in the Gospel of Matthew, where the names of five women appear in an otherwise all-male cast. Just as striking is the diversity of these women. Consider Tamar, who disguised herself as a prostitute in order to have a child through the line of Judah, from which the Messiah would come. By the way, Judah was Tamar's father. Then there's Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute who hid the Hebrew spies during their recon of the Promised Land. Next is Ruth, a woman from Moab, who marries a Jew and bears a son who becomes the grandfather of King David. Bathsheba follows, who will always be remembered as the married woman whom King David took for himself, which resulted in the birth of an illegitimate child. Last listed is Mary, 
the mother of Jesus, and only one of the five with an impeccable pedigree and reputation. So, it would appear that God not only has an important place for women in history, but that he also works through all kinds of women. What do you think? Let's now move from Old Testament times to the New Testament era to see what place women had in the first century church. Since half of the books in the New Testament are credited to the Apostle Paul, let's see what he has to say about a woman's place by turning first to Romans chapter 16. In Paul's closing words to that long and illustrious letter, he extends personal greetings and words of appreciation to 29 individuals, of whom eight are women. It's noteworthy that Phoebe, the likely person whom Paul entrusted with his letter to Rome, is listed first. It's also noteworthy that a couple named Prisca and Aquila are named next, with Prisca's name appearing first. A bit further down the list, we find another couple, Andronicus and Junius, whom Paul describes as outstanding among the apostles. Is he saying that women are in the same league as Jesus's 12 apostles? Now, if you're thinking that I'm building a case for women having an equal place in the church as men, bear in mind that there's another side to this coin. My singular interest is how God addresses this subject. In the Bible, if it is, in fact, the inspired word of God, then the answer to a woman's place in the church and in the world is found there, and not in our personal opinions. Before proceeding, we must take into account our own biases and preconceptions that lead us to premature conclusions. So, as best you and I can, let's set aside those opinions on this subject and see what the Bible says as a whole. Christians who want to support their particular persuasions often select particular Bible verses for support. This is called proof texting. We've all done it, including me. But doing so does not do justice to the text and can easily lead those with some finesse to prove, and I say that in quotes, to prove their assumed point of view. For example, Consider Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Some interpreters say that Paul's statement in that verse negates distinct gender roles in the church. Some might even go so far as to say it does away with gender roles entirely. To rightly interpret any text, we must first read it in the context, which in this case is Galatians chapter 3, verses 22 through 29. Notice how Paul begins by saying, The scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That's verse 22. He then follows with these words, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 26. Therefore, 
With this context in view, it's quite clear that Paul's statement in verse 28 is not about the place or roles of men and women in church, but that God's salvation is given to all who receive it through faith in Christ, regardless of ethnicity, neither Jew nor Greek, regardless of status, neither slave nor free, and regardless of gender, neither male nor female. For this reason, we must look elsewhere in the Bible to understand what God has to say about a woman's place in the church and in the world. In Romans, Paul commends women as fellow workers and outstanding among the apostles. So it seems clear that women had an important place both in his life and in the church. Keep this in mind as we now consider these words to his protege, through whom Paul instructs the church. In the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 19 to 15, the apostle gives this command. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, and I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet, verses 11 and 12. How does that sound to you, especially if you're a woman? How does it make you feel? After hearing those verses, notice how easily preconceptions and personal bias can lead to premature conclusions about a woman's place. By the way, these two verses from 1 Timothy are no less controversial than the passage in which they appear. So. Be careful not to read in or out of the context what isn't there. At this point in our series on a woman's place, my intent is simply to get us to think outside the box of bias by looking objectively and open-mindedly at what God is really saying in his word and how it applies to our lives, to our churches, and to the world in which we live. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9-15 through 15 is a very challenging and often confusing passage in light of what the Apostle Paul writes elsewhere. But there it is. And there it will be when we get to the end of this series and look at it closely in the light of what's coming down the pike. So, fasten your seatbelt as we continue in this series on A Woman's Place. Three questions for your consideration. How is this particular topic impacted by your personal bias and preconceptions? How would you defend your view in a discussion with someone who disagrees? Based upon what you think right now, what is a woman's place in the church?